Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis. And today we are uh, turning to Genesis and the sixth chapter. And our focus of meditation will be Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. Let me invite you as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Beginning read from Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1, wherein Moses faithfully records. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in under the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of His Word. And let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we come before Thee again uh, with our Bibles open, and our ears open, and our minds open, our spirits open before Thee. Uh, as a flower opens to the sun, we ask that You would give us illumination, that You would give us light, that You would be able to help us to see truth, and to move toward it, and to embrace it. Remove the obstacles that may be there, overcome them by Thy irresistible grace, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, we are continuing today this ongoing series through the first book of the Christian Scriptures, the book of Genesis. And we talked before about how essential this book is for really understanding everything else in the Bible. So foundational, you don't really understand the plan of salvation, unless you understand the book of Genesis. And last time we saw in Genesis 5, in the time after the fall, what was called in Genesis 5.1, the book of the generations of Adam. And we saw there a line that was traced from Adam uh, to Noah. Some ten generations. And that was through the line of Seth. And those ten generations, we might well imagine that the fall of man 
generally continued to cycle lower and lower into degeneracy. Despite the fact that there were some godly men like Enoch, the seventh from Adam, of whom it was said in verse 24 of Genesis 5 that he walked with God and was not, for God took him. What an encouraging statement that is because Enoch had remaining corruptions in him even as we do. He was a post-fallen man. And yet by God's grace he was able to attain unto holiness. And he was able to attain to a sanctified life. Uh, Though imperfectly because he had remaining corruptions within him. But it was so great that God in his mercy took him. And he like Elijah later would not taste of death. Well, we had those, those ten generations listed in the line of Adam. And the last of those was Noah. And with the arrival of Noah, there comes a turning point in the history of mankind. And not just in the history of mankind, but indeed in the history of all creation. In, in all of history. With the arrival of Noah. And so, uh, that is the the place we are today in the Scriptures. We're on this threshold of looking at what happened in the days of Noah. And during this time, God determined in His infinite wisdom and goodness that He would deal with man's degenerate sin and this increasing degeneracy. And He would do so by bringing about a cataclysmic act of chastening in the flood. And so over the next several Lord's Days we're going to be meditating and reading about the flood starting here in Genesis 6 and it'll extend through Genesis 9 and then even on into, into chapter 10. And so that's, that's what's before us in the days to come. And so we see in this again both the, the, the righteousness of God that calls forth His His just chastening of the world. But as we will see, we also are pointed toward His remarkable mercy and His remarkable grace that will come to its fullest fruition, of course, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, with that, let's turn and look at our passage. And we can divide our text today, Genesis 6, 1-8, through I think, into two parts, just as the Uh, old uh, authorized version translators did. And the first part is verses 1 through 4. And there we have an account of what is called the sons of God and the daughters of men. A very confusing statement, but we will look at it and see if we can discern uh, what its meaning is. And then the second part of our text is verses 5 through 8 which describes the wickedness of man and the righteous judgment of God, but also the grace of God. And so we'll meditate upon those themes in verses 5 through 8. But let's begin with verses 1 through 4. The sons of God and the daughters of men. One commentator that I read said, this section, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is one of the most difficult passages in the entire 
book of Genesis. It tells us here in these verses some details about ancient humanity in the time before the flood, the antediluvian age, the time before the flood. Things that are to us now from our perspective, things that are still shrouded in mystery, things that are hard clearly to understand. Think about your own family history. If I were to ask you about your family, my guess is you would easily tell me about your parents, you would tell me about your grandparents, some of you might even know something about your great-grandparents, but if we were to go a little bit beyond them, my guess is most of us, unless you've done some sort of genealogical study, you wouldn't know much about them, most likely. And if we could draw a comparison to that, the further back we look in human history, the harder it is for us to determine with absolute clarity some of those early things that happened apart from revealed truth that we have in places like the writings of the scriptures. Um, so it is with the early history of mankind. We do know from Genesis 5, our previous chapter, that there were two lines that came from Adam and Eve after the fall. And those two lines were first the line of Cain. And remember the Apostle John described Cain in 1 John 3.12 as being of that wicked one. So in some ways Cain is, is the line of the serpent who is opposed to the line of the seed, the righteous seed of the woman. And the second line was the line of Seth. Seth was the replacement, remember, for righteous Abel, who was struck down by his brother. And so um, we have that background. We know there was the line of Cain, there was the line of Seth. And that gives us some background then for hearing what is said here in verse 1 of Genesis 6. It begins, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them. And the first thing that is mentioned is this fact of the multiplication of humanity upon the face of the earth. On one hand, this shows that men were fulfilling the command of God that had been made prior to the fall. If you look back again to Genesis 1 and verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. So on one hand, despite man being in his fallen state, we could say to some degree, he is fulfilling this uh, command to multiply and some call it the dominion mandate. Mankind was given by God in His innocency a generative capacity to fill the earth. For the earth to be populated. But on the other hand, we now know that mankind had fallen at this point from their state of innocence... And this had affected all aspects of their humanity. And we know from the description of the curse in Genesis 3 that this had distorted in particular the relationship between man and woman. It had distorted the, the marriage relationship and the, and the general relationship between males and females. 
We notice in particular here in Genesis 6-1 at the very end, there's the mention there that daughters were born unto them. That seems interesting. Why not sons and daughters were born to them? But it wants us to think especially about the daughters that were born unto them. And if we think about it, if we go back and and, and we look uh, at Genesis uh, uh, 5, we see uh, uh, that... uh, when there was a mention of the daughters uh, within the lines of, of Cain, for example, uh, women were very only very sparingly mentioned, actually in Genesis chapter 4, only sparingly, sparingly mentioned in the line of Cain. There was the mention in Genesis 4.17 of Cain's wife, for example. There was the mention in Genesis 4.19 of the two wives of Lamech, and that was a violation of Genesis 2.24. It was only supposed to be one man and one woman, but Lamech from the line of Cain had broken that. We have the name of the two wives, Ada and Zillah. But the first time we even have a mention of a woman's name uh, coming in the line of Cain, it is the mention in Genesis 4.22 of Namah, who was the daughter of the union between uh, Lamech and Zillah, and she was the sister of of her brother Tubal-Cain. But mostly it focuses on the men who were in the line of Cain. And if we turn over and look at the line of Seth, which we saw in Genesis 5, this is even more the case. There's the listing of, 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 of fathers who begat sons, but there are no mention in Genesis 5 in those ten generations of the female descendants. However, it's repeated over and over again, beginning with Adam, In Genesis 5 and verse 4, he begat sons and daughters. And it said that for each of the ten, or or nine of the ten leading up to Noah, uh, of the generation coming from Adam through Seth, that they begat sons and daughters. Now we come to Genesis 6-1, and we have an explicit, explicit mention here of daughters who were being born to them. And this anticipates what's going to be described in verse 2, which says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And so the mention of the daughters there, I think, is a direct anticipation of this description that we're told about in verse 2. Now, this... Verse 2 is a notorious point of dispute in interpretation. We have some fundamental questions to ask. Who were the sons of God? And who were the daughters of men? Let me offer a couple of views on this. One view that remains popular in some circles today, a view that was suggested by some of the old rabbis, and even by some of the early Christian writers, the so-called church fathers, is a viewpoint that sees what is described here as an unnatural relationship. This view says that the sons of God, mentioned in Genesis 6-2, were heavenly, angelic beings who came down to earth and had unnatural relationships with human daughters. Those who hold this view will often appeal to the descriptions, especially in the book of Job, 
of members of the heavenly court, angels, who are described by the term sons of God. In Job 1.6, for example, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Likewise, in Job 2.1, it says again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Some who hold this view would further argue that the illicit relationship between these angelic figures, the sons of God, and the daughters of men resulted in the birth of hybrid creatures identified later in verse 4 as the Nephilim. That's the Hebrew term translated in the authorized version as giants. So it says in verse 4, there were giants in the earth or Nephilim in the earth in those days. And you will see this view Sometimes present in evangelical study Bibles, as I consulted one and saw that was the view of it. Um, here, back a, uh, recently, a few years ago at least, I was reading uh, a document online by a, uh, someone who's a, a well-known evangelical uh, theologian who works in textual criticism, and I noticed he had this very elaborate view about how there were these hybrid creatures still around us in, in uh, on the earth today, and, and how they might be determined they were agents of evil and so forth. It was, it, it was uh, uh, really seemed quite far-fetched to me, but anyways, I read it. Um, it seems to me, though, there are at least three problems with this interpretation that sees the sons of God in verse 2 as being angelic creatures and the daughters of men to be human women and and them having a hybrid offspring through unnatural relations. Here are the three problems. First and most significantly, it says in verse 2 that they took them wives. And this implies marriage. But there is no supporting biblical data indicating that angels or heavenly beings either marry or have generative powers. In fact, you may remember that in Matthew chapter 22, it wasn't that long ago we looked at it, when Christ was disputing with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And they, were, they brought to, to Christ a, a case of a woman who was married to seven brothers and they all died without any offspring. He says, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? And you might remember that Christ had answered to those men that they don't know the scriptures. And he said in Matthew 22 verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. And so the implication is there that, that first of all, in, at the resurrection, the marriage relationship does not continue contra Mormons. But also, as an aside, he also tells us that, that, that we will be like the angels. Not that we will be angels. We will be like the angels. And that means we will not marry. We will not be given in marriage. And this, this tells us angels did not marry. And by implication, 
that they did not, do not have a generative capacity. Second reason that this theory of unnatural relations between angelic beings and human daughters uh, would be questioned would be the fact that in the law of Moses, in the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, angels are never called sons of God. That term only appears for angelic beings outside the writings of Moses, like in the book of Job. Third, in fact, a close reading of the text nowhere concludes that the giants or the Nephilim are the fruit of the marriages that are in question in verse 2. In fact, if you look at verse 4, you'll see that that opening statement, there were giants in the earth in those days, that's really an independent statement. It could almost be listed as a separate verse. And there's no indication that these giants are the offspring of the the unnatural union that's described in verse 2. Or what is described continuing in the remainder of verse 4. Another interpretation suggests that the sons of God in verse 2 refers to the human sons of rulers or princes who married women from a lower social caste. This interpretation is tied to Psalm 82 verse 6 which is addressed The psalm in general, 82, is addressed to unjust judges in Israel who are described as having God-like powers. And in Psalm 82, 6, it says, the Lord says, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are the children of the Most High. Christ himself quoted Psalm 82, 6 in John 10 and verse 34. But even this passage does not explicitly use the term sons of God and the context does not support this interpretation. How then are we to understand Genesis 6-2? Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? I find attractive a suggestion that was made by many of the Reformed interpreters, commentators upon this passage. It's articulated in a contemporary setting by John Currid, who taught Old Testament at the Reformed Seminary uh, in Mississippi. He said, it is more reasonable to conclude that the sons of God are those of the line of Seth, the godly line, and the daughters of men are the descendants of Cain. And remember, Cain's line were the more deeply flawed men, the descendants of the one who had risen up and struck down Abel. Thus, he continues, the episode relates the intermarriage of the two lines, the joining together of the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And what it really shows is the further degradation of man and the further corruption even of the godly line, the more godly line that had come from Seth. This was also the interpretation of the Puritan exegete Matthew Poole 
who adds, looking at verse 2, that the fact that it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, the notice of that they were fair indicates, according to Poole, that they were more enticing and prevalent with fleshly-minded men. He adds second that the note that they took them wives of all which they chose also indicates that they might have done so by force in an ungodly manner and, Poole adds, possibly more than one for each of them after the example of the wicked families into which they were matched. And so they began to follow the example of Lamech. Remember in Genesis 4 and verse 19, who was the first person mentioned in Scripture who took to him not one wife, but two wives. In verse 3 then, we are uh, made privy to the deliberations of a holy God as to what He is to do with an increasingly unholy mankind. And so in verse 3 we read, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. And so, as we read this, we are made aware of the fact that God's most holy spirit was grieved in particular with the increasing unholy state of man. And this little opening description here in verse 3 just simply reminds us of the holiness and the righteousness of God. In Habakkuk 1.13 it says that God's eyes are too holy to look upon iniquity. In Leviticus 11.44, God will say to the people of Israel, Be ye holy, as I am holy. And Peter will repeat that in 1 Peter 1.16. But here the Lord looks at this increasing degeneracy among men, uh, mankind. And he is, he is grieved by it. And then we see that God determined that he would not live in this state of enmity with the very creature, mankind, whom he had made in his own image and in his own likeness. The, the very creature that he had made to be the crown of his creation. And God, a sovereign God, had the power in his hand to end the line of man here forever. He had the power in his hand to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. And Moses, Moses implies to us that the Lord considered that. The Lord considered that. But did you notice also at the end of verse 3, it says that His Spirit, His Spirit shall not always strive with man, but then it says, for that He also is flesh. And here's a little bit of light, a little bit of hope, because it says that the Lord remembers the limitations also of mankind. He remembers that He is merely flesh. And this calls to mind Psalm 103, verse 14. For He that is God knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. And so then, 
after noting that, that a righteous God rightly was saying, I will not strive with such sinful men. I can wipe them off the face of the earth. But he remembers that they are dust. And so the, the very last line there in verse 3 is, the Lord saying, Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Some have suggested that this statement means that God, at this time, determined to limit the lifespan of man to 120 years. That that is the upper limit that a person can live. And we were contemplating this, remember, last time. Because remember in Genesis 5, the the record there is that in the pre-flood world, men were living many, many years. If you look back in Genesis 5 and verse 5, Adam lived 930 years. And the oldest man recorded in the scriptures, uh, also in Genesis 5 and verse 27, was Methuselah, who lived 969 years. The problem with this view, however, that what is being addressed here is the upper limit of a man's age in this fallen world, is that if you look a little bit forward uh, in this account in Genesis 11, you see that there were persons who continued to live beyond 120 years. And so look over at Genesis 11 and look at verse 10, which begins to lift the generations of Shem. And you will notice there uh, that that Shem uh, lived uh, 500 years. Um, Actually, it says, I think in verse 11, yes, and Shem lived after he begat our our facts had 500 years and he had him when he was 100 years old so that would mean that uh, he was 600 years old and so men continued to live beyond the span of 120 years so that must not be what is being stated to us in Genesis 6 and verse 3 what, what is the alternative what, how is, what's the other way to, to reasonably interpret this and I think the other way reasonably to interpret this is That God is declaring that mankind from this point, the point at which he's speaking here, has 120 more years on earth in which they might repent before God will bring about his judgment upon them through the flood. Basically God was saying, if they repent in the next 120 years, I'll give them 120 more years. But if not, I shall bring upon them the flood. This brings to mind what the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he wrote about scoffers at his time who began questioning why Christ had not immediately returned. And in a famous response in 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter had said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, the Lord has extended the days. This is why Christ has not come as soon as we might have wished or hoped. (laughs) But it's not a sign of God's slackness. It's a sign of His mercy. He's extending the time so that So that all the elect might be saved. We draw a parallel between that and what happened in the days of 
of Noah. God saw the wickedness that was on the face of the earth. He saw the sinful union of the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And the, the increasing, spiraling, downward degeneracy. And he said, I'll give them 120 more years. I'll give them 120 more years. Are you familiar with the, the parable that our Lord told in Luke 13, verses 6 through 10? It's the parable of the fig tree. It was an unfruitful fig tree. And in the parable, uh, there's, the, there's the tender of the fig tree who comes to the master and says, let's give it one more year. Let's give it one more year. Let me tend it one more year. Let, let me put the fertilizer around it one more year. Let's, see if, let's give it one more year to be fruitful. And it's that same sort of attitude here in our God that we see being reflected Despite the fact that he is a holy God who cannot dare to look upon iniquity, he sees the desperate state of man in sin, and he says, well, I'll give him 120 years. I'll give him 120 years. This is the way our God is. Do you think he sometimes looked at your life and said, I ought to, I ought to snuff him out right now. But I'll give him, I'll give him a few more years. I'll give, him, I'll give her a little bit more time to see uh, what, what will be done with it. Well, as we'll see, sadly, they, they, were, they did not uh, redeem that time. Let's go on to, to verse 4. Again, I, I see that this is a, a standalone statement in verse 4. There were giants, or there were Nephilim in the earth in those days. If these were not the unnatural offspring of angels and men, then who were they? The only place in the scriptures where we have another mention of the Nephilim is in the book of Numbers. And it's the context, uh, within the context, when the spies were sent out to scope out the land of Canaan. And in Numbers 13, verses 31 and following, we read, But the men that went up with him... Uh, who went up with the spies, said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And this is Numbers uh, 13, 33. And there we saw the giants, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. So if these were not the offspring, unnatural offspring of angelic sons of God and, and, and human women, uh, what is meant here by these giants? Perhaps the best way to understand this is by comparing it to the capacity of men in the days closer to the fall to live longer lives. Again, Adam lived 930 years. Methuselah, 969. Men, in those times, closer to the epicenter of the fall, not only lived longer, but perhaps they were larger. One commentator thus concludes, the reference to the presence of giants in Genesis seems to be no more than a characterization of the time. Before the flood, people lived for many years 
And they were all, there were also some who grew to vast physical proportions. In the second half of verse 4, Moses continues, And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And so... We have the reference here to these to the sons of God coming into the daughters of men. We think these are men from the line of Seth and the, the, the daughters that come from the line of Cain. And perhaps even the language itself, the language of them coming in unto the daughters of men is a cruder expression of the union between man and woman, perhaps expressing the degradation of the marriage state and the error of the joining of the line of Seth with that of Cain. But from them came those who are described here in verse 4 as the mighty men which were of old, men of renown. This may indicate that even those from Seth's line began to follow the way of Cain. And you remember when we were looking at, at back at Genesis 4, verses 16 through 24, the, the, the descendants in the line of Cain, we noticed that they were often described as being very able men. And so they were able to build cities as Cain did, naming uh, the, the first city he built after his son Enoch. We, we noted that they were accomplished in secular pursuits like raising cattle, making music, working with metal. But what was their downfall? In all of that secular success, they neglected the things of God and contrary to the initial line of Seth, they failed to call upon the name of God in prayer and worship. One commentator compared this union between the sons of God, the line of Seth, and the daughters of men, the line of Cain, to mixed marriages in which a Christian joins himself to a non-Christian. He noted that some have called this missionary dating. But this commentator said, my question was always, which one is the missionary? Because sometimes the Christian thinks that they will be able to raise the unbeliever up to a spiritual state with them. But very often it happens the opposite way. And it's the unbeliever who serves as a missionary to the one who's a believer. A classic proof text cited by our confession in its teaching on suitable marriages for believers, is 2 Corinthians 6.14. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. The line of Seth, the sons of God, were unequally yoked with the line of Cain. The result in the long haul would be disastrous. And this takes us to the second part of our passage. We're in Genesis 6 and verse 5. And we could give us a heading for uh, this last part of the passage, verses 5 through 8. The wickedness of man, the justice of God, and the grace of God. In verse 5 we read, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what we learn here in verse 5 is that man did not redeem the time. Man did not redeem the 120 years that he had been given. But instead, things had gotten worse and worse. 
And so the Lord declares here, He looks and He sees and He declares, the wickedness of man is great. And this this passage, verse 5, stands in great contrast to the way God had looked upon the beautiful pre-fallen creation. Remember back in Genesis 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. Now, Contrast that with Genesis 6 verse 5. Now God looks at the state of man, the crown of His creation, and He saw that the wickedness of man was great. You'll notice that He describes not only the deeds of men as wicked, but also their very thoughts. The imagination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. One commentator notes that the word heart in Hebrew is a word that's not connected with emotions. We think hearts and rainbows and emotions and I heart this and so forth. But heart in the Old Testament, in the Bible in general, in Hebrew, refers to the persona, the inner being, the seat of both thought and emotion. It is the essence of the person. And thus what we see is the condition that's being described here is total depravity. This passage, as one study Bible puts it, has rightly been called one of the strongest and clearest statements about man's sinful nature. It's a proof text for the T in tulip. Total or radical depravity that sin affects all that we are, including even every imagination of the thoughts of our heart. In verse 6, Moses continues, And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. Now this verse might easily lead one to misunderstand the nature and the character of God if it's not rightly divided. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him at His heart. We will recognize this immediately as the language of accommodation. It is anthropomorphic language. It's using descriptions we are commonly exposed to of human beings to whisper to us, list to us something of God. God, of course, is without body parts and passions. He doesn't have a physical heart that beats. And God is all holy. There is no sin in Him. So when it says here that it repented the Lord, it doesn't mean, of course, that the Lord repented of sin. He has, there's no sin in Him. In addition, God's decrees are perfect. And God does not change His mind. What He decrees is perfect and it always comes to pass. So repent here does not indicate a change of mind or intention in God. We can look at Numbers 23.19 which says, God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. Or in 1 Samuel 15.29 it says, And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for He is not a man that He should repent. As one commentator then put it, so it is not an issue of God's changing His mind or repenting, but rather it's a way of expressing the fact that God is displeased and disquieted by the course of human development. 
It says at the end of verse 6 that it, it grieved him in his heart. This too is language of accommodation. Theologians call this an anthropopathism. Anthropopathism. Meaning Moses is employing expressions of human pain and sorrow to demonstrate God's attitude towards mankind's sin. The Lord then makes a declaration of His intent in verse 7 utterly to destroy man. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Was He just in in making that declaration? Of course He was. He had been patient. He had been merciful. He had been kind. He had given 120 years to see change. And the time had come. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And then we learn that this decision would impact not only man, but also the rest of creation. Look at verse 7. Both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. All creation would pay a price for man's sin. And at the end of verse 7, we again hear this anthropomorphic language. For it repenteth me that I have made them. And once again, we are seeing the the grief, the disturbance within God's own self at the mess that fallen humanity had made of the perfect world and the orderly design that God had once looked upon and declared to be very good. Imagine... If you took the time to build or prepare something, I don't know, you're a, you're a carpenter and you make a piece of furniture or you're, a, you're a, a, a baker and you make a cake and you, you spend time making something and it's intricate and it's beautiful and someone rushes in and just takes your cake and throws it on the ground. Takes the piece of furniture you've made and smashes it. Well, that's what we're to imagine uh, here for the Lord's reaction to seeing, again, the mess that fallen humanity had made of the world. What a terrible state things were in. God would have been completely justified at this point to do just as He had declared. Just as in the days of the prophet Jonah, God would have been justified to wipe unrighteous Nineveh off the map. But what did God do? He softened his heart toward Nineveh. And he sent his reluctant prophet, Jonah, to that great city. And almost in spite of Jonah, who tried to run the opposite way, God chose to deliver Nineveh. And while Jonah moped, God responded in the last verse of that little book, Jonah 4.11, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. Took care of the animals too. Well, we see that same God that we'll see in the book of Jonah. Here in Genesis, in the account of Noah. Because look at the next verse. Look at verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Light breaks through. But Noah 
found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There are so many of these great, what we call, adversative conjunction sentences or statements in the Bible. Simple way of saying that is, but statements. Here's the situation, but. An example of this is in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Prior to, to verse 11, Paul is describing all the terrible, ungodly, sinful ways that men were living in the first century. He, he talks about people who were idolaters, people who were sexually immoral, people who were liars, uh, people who were, uh, were sexual deviants. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, to the Christians he was writing to, and such were some of you. But, but ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Another example of these great adversative conjunction statements or but statements is in Ephesians 2, verses 3 and following, wherein Paul describes the Ephesians as those who used to have their conversation or their conduct in times past in the lust of their flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And he says, at those times they were by nature children of wrath, even as others. And then in Ephesians 2, 4 he says, but God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. And so we can add Genesis 6-8 to that list of those great adversative conjunction statements. But, but, notice it says here in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It does not say that Noah earned grace, does it? It does not say that Noah deserved grace. It does not say that he won grace or he accomplished grace or that he merited grace, but that he found it, which means he was given it by God. God's response to man's terrible sin was grace. God's promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 would not fail. And friends, we've come to the end of the passage. I hope with the Spirit's help, you've connected the dots. But let's just offer just a, another reflection upon it. We're reminded here in these eight verses of how God works. When He came to mankind who was, whose wickedness was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. What did He do? Did He, did he snuff out mankind and wipe them off of the face of the earth as He might justly have done no, he gave grace. And Noah found grace. And to bring it closer to home, friends, if you're a believer, 
What was your life like when God found you, came upon you? What was your heart like? What were you thinking? What were you doing? Might God have been justified to stricken you down and have you experienced not only death, but, but the second death? Of course He would have been completely justified to do that. But what did He choose to do instead? I'll give Him another year. I'll give her another year. And I'll give Him grace. I'll give you grace through Christ. The story is told of a mother, a mother who had many children, and she had a hard time keeping up with all those children. They were always going all these different directions. And um, she lost track of one of those little kids and was looking all over the place, couldn't find the kid, was yelling for him. And finally she came to an old oil, oil barrel. And she looked down into the oil barrel and there at the bottom of the barrel was her wayward child. He was covered head to, to toe in goo and dirt and grime and oil. And she reportedly exclaimed when she saw him there, Lord, it would just about be easier to have another one than it would be to clean you up. It'd be easier to have another one than it would be to clean you up. The Lord did not give us over to what we deserved. He saved us and is cleaning us up. We believe in Christ. We have found grace in His eyes. All praise, glory, and honor be given unto Him. Amen? Let me about you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give Thee thanks today for Thy Word and for the, this ancient account of our origins and for this, this ancient insight, revelation of who Thou art and what is Thy character. And so help us to take what we have heard and uh, to learn from it and to, to let Thy Word find a resting place in our hearts. Build up and edify the saints and draw those who are outside of the faith unto Christ. We ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen.